Welcome home to a life without limits, where you honor your alignment, nourish your soul, and awaken your inner goddess. Some days we fly, some, well, we've got you, sister. Abundance is your birthright. This is your remembrance. Hot Mess Goddess, juicy conversations for a luscious life. Such a heartwarming conversation today with Katie Wyatt. She's the founder of No Rain, No Rainbows, which is an organization helping women and children around the world. And she's an ambassador for Project Happiness. Her story is deeply impactful, a little heartbreaking, and also such an inspiration for anyone who's ever been to the depths of wanting to escape themselves. Welcome, Katie. What a freaking honor it is to have you on today. It's been a while coming. We've tried for a couple of weeks now, but finally we have you on. It's absolutely gorgeous to be here and it's lovely to see you, Sally. You look gorgeous as ever. Oh my gosh, as you do. Your story has touched my heart since the day we first virtually met last year. So I guess for me personally, that seems like a beautiful place to start. Like you're a POM living in the US and you've been on a fascinating journey. Would you like to share some of that with us? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm from the UK and I'm now living in the middle of America in Indiana with my husband, Johnny. And it will be three years this October, which I can't believe I'm saying it's just gone so quickly. So yes, I'm from the northwest of England, small Roman city called Chester. I guess the story that we've shared together really began when I met my husband. But I think really the story goes way back before then. I think as a child, I had that feeling that I know so many other people have shared that they had with me. And that is an outsider looking in on life. I was the awkward one in the playground at school. I'm writing a story called Never Leave. And I've written in that story that, you know, it breaks times and lunchtime, I would walk quickly from one place to the next, trying to look like I had somewhere to go. But I just had that empty space inside and I just felt that I had nowhere to go. So I found sanctuary at my grandpa's house and he lived about a 10 minute walk and I would go there every lunch. And I think he gave me about the same lunch for about five years this chunky chicken out of a tin with those colorful vegetables out of a tin. (laughs) And and he would organize it perfectly around the edges. And it was always the same. And I, I never got bored. And he was my safe haven. So I kind of left school and I I just wanted to fill that void. I didn't recognize it at the time as a void. I just felt awkward. I wanted to express myself, but I didn't really know how. And I really just wanted to please. I wanted to please my family. But I was different from my sisters. My sisters were so good at saying yes and just doing as they were told. And I was the person that asked why. And I think um, my dad probably found that challenging. And I didn't quite fit into that mold of just being the good daughter. And leaving school, I sort of fell into a job in the bank. You know, I worked in the bank. I'm so creative. So it's probably the, you know, the last place that I would fit (laughs) in. I went to work in a clothes shop that was opening just for the opening day. Someone asked me, would I help open this shop up? And I just remember the music and the colorful clothes and people dancing and just this expression. And I just thought, wow, I just need to leave the bank and I need to work here. 
so much to everybody's disapproval. I, I left the bank and the job that everybody felt very proud of that I'd got. And um, I went to work in this funky clothes shop. And I think that's when I just began to sort of blossom a little bit. I just started to find myself. And so the journey just twisted and turned and I was introduced to alcohol. I was introduced to party drugs and I experimented. And some of those just really filled the void in a really great way. And I could suddenly dance without feeling self-conscious or I could have conversations without worrying about how I sounded. And this was kind of a perceived, I guess, as like a special treat. It was something that I did with friends maybe once a month on a special occasion. And that continued for many years. I progressed in my career. I was managing restaurants and I moved from the northwest of England and I moved to London and had the kind of time you want to have in those years in your life in London. It was fun and the social scene was exciting. We worked hard, we played hard and uh, life felt very good. And I moved back north after about three years of living in London. And I was training managers for the company that I worked for. And one of them, when he graduated, asked me if I'd like to go out for a drink, a celebratory drink. And I said, yes. And two bottles of champagne later, we started dating. And it was just this exciting whirlwind romance. And I think it was, well, I don't think I know. It was six months and six days after we started dating uh, that we got married. And wow. um, it was, yeah, it was quite a whirlwind. But my parents had got engaged very quickly after meeting. And I think I'd been brought up listening to them say, when you know, you know. And I think because my sister had got married before me and I was the older sister, I just put this unnecessary pressure, I guess, or expectation on myself that I should perhaps be settling down. And here was somebody who ticked some boxes. And I think I was just at an age where I was just intoxicated. It was exciting. And here was somebody who I look back now who demonstrated what I thought were exciting qualities, but actually they were impulsive. I guess they were exciting at the time. So there was um, lots of alcohol and going out and generosity. And I was just taken in by this whirlwind. Still in the honeymoon phase too, of course. Yeah. So it just felt like a very exciting time and things just moved really, really fast. And we got married and then went on our honeymoon. And it was a couple of weeks after our honeymoon that we were having just a simple play fight in the bed of whose feet are going where. And, um, and before I knew it, I was lifted out of the bed um, and smashed into the bed. And when I came round, I still had my eyes closed. And I just remember hearing him say, I wish I hadn't married you. Oh my goodness. And when I opened my eyes, that same person started crying and asked if we should get an ambulance. So it was such a significant point because to hear somebody that I love so much, hear them say that they wish we weren't married and then to see the same person within a few seconds, you know, when I opened my eyes, start crying. I think I just deeply knew then that this person was unhinged. Highly volatile. <laughs> just like deeply. And I just knew I was in trouble, like unspeakable trouble. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. I just didn't speak about it to anybody, not even myself. I think it just went in a box. And interestingly, I think I just wanted to quickly piece it all back together as fast as possible in terms of the relationship and in terms of just to make everything okay and to make everything normal again. And you know, and you look back and you obviously I work with women in abuse now, but you look back and you just think, you know, I guess you ask yourself why 
there were so many conversations that could have happened. There were so many different outcomes from that. You know, someone would have got up then and left and never gone back. And there's all those shades in between of what I could have said or could have done. But I think, as you know, as I know, what's fascinating about abuse is that our responses are in no way aligned to what we think we would do in the cold light of day. And that cycle of abuse is exactly what begins. It was really tough because I wanted the fairy tale. Did you ever think it was going to be a one-off? I don't know that I even thought about it. I can't remember. I'm happy to say that I don't think about it at all anymore. There's some things that are more vivid in my memory, but I think that's because I've delved into them to write my story and I've allowed myself to really go in and relive it so that my writing was powerful. But otherwise, I'm so grateful that actually I just don't think about him or it at all. I think I've completely made peace with him. I've made peace with the relationship. I've also made peace with myself and the part that I played in it, which was great. I think that it's definitely not all on him. And like so many of these stories, he was abused by his mother. And also I was attracted. I was attracted to the chaos. I was attracted to his generosity. I was attracted to the shallowness of the presence and the champagne and the partying. <laughs> so the relationship didn't have any roots. You know, we met, we got married really quickly. The roots hadn't got any depth at all. And, and so when the storms came, we just fell over very quickly. But I think even from a child, and I'm still very much like that today, you know, I, I want to put things back together you know, if somebody says you can't, I naturally think, yes, I can. If somebody says it's not possible, I, I think, oh, well, I'll, I'll find a way. So interestingly, it became about how can I steady the ship and how can we put these broken pieces back together and make them stronger? And I have a, a beautiful friend and she, she says, you know, a healthy relationship is like an elastic band. You know, you both have to step in sometimes 60% and 40 and sometimes 50-50, sometimes 70-30, but both of you have to attempt to meet somewhere in the middle to keep it taut. That's a beautiful analogy. It was just very much me. He, he drank. He drank a lot every day. I would have thought given what was happening when he was drinking, that would have repulsed me enough to stop. But I drank. And I think that that definitely played a part in when it escalated, it made it escalate faster. How long did you stay in that situation? I was thinking about it the other day, so many years ago now, and on my one-year wedding anniversary, somebody came and signed up as a lodger in my home because he'd already gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. However, he stayed in my life for longer. The relationship was on and off for longer, and some of the incidents that followed went on after that. The end of the relationship was by no means the end of the violence and the emotional fear and abuse which is often the case when it escalates after the relationship ends because the dynamics and the control is shifting. Yeah. It was not something that I'd want to go through again, but I would say that it's taken years, but I, I would say I'm a much better person for it. I mean, after that, I hit rock bottom, whether that was from seeing myself very physically hurt and also just not being able to cope with the failure of the marriage. So interesting. I had a wonderful lady called Pam, who was my counsellor through victim support. She came through the police. They like offered, would you like to have counselling? And I used to say she was like my ready break. I don't know what you have in Australia, but ready break is like a porridge. Oh, okay. They do these adverts of sort of like when you have your porridge, you get this warm glow in the morning. And that keeps you warm all day. And so, yes, it's called ready break. And I would say Pam's like my ready break. 
you know, I just want to put it in my pocket. She's like my comfort blanket. Yeah. And she was so gorgeous. And I'd go and see her and, you know, you look back and you think all the conversations with her really was about what can I do to change? You know, like if I'm just taller, if I was thinner, if I was more interesting, if I was funnier, if I didn't do this, if I lost a bit of weight, if I hadn't have said that or whatever, you know, all about if I could change, then what if? And that's so interesting because it's the first thing the victim mind goes to. Why? What have I done? What could I have done differently? Yeah. And so I think all the sessions were about that. I mean, I say on my website, you know, the other day I was saying about discover your pot of gold within and I was writing and I was writing about this lighthouse, you know, and sort of thinking of myself like thrashing around in the sea, you know, for all those years, you know, not all the time. Life was great an awful lot of the time, but just these storms, you know, you'd go through, whether it was maybe using alcohol as a crutch, or maybe it was using something else as a crutch or whatever that was, or spending time with people that just were not, just not your rainbow tribe, just not your family, you know? Yeah. And you think about that lighthouse and you think about how you're just out at see and nobody really ever taught me about the journey home that that lighthouse was inside but that pot of gold is inside it was always this external search I mean, you know, I haven't done drugs for, I don't know, 15 years, but you know, you have a line of cocaine and you're then chasing it the whole night, just trying to get back that feeling. Or you have that glass of wine and then you've had a bottle or you buy the dress or whatever it is, external, 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 whether it's exercise and for everybody, it's something different. But for so many, it's that if I just get to this place, if I just have that, when I get that job, when I complete this, if I look like that, when I lose the five pounds then I'll be happy. Then I'll feel good. Then I'll be more complete. Then I'll be more attractive. Then I'll get that person. Then I'll be ready for the relationship. And on and on and on, you know, we set these just daily, weekly, monthly, yearly life goals for ourselves. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was like when I got divorced. I went through all of those things. If I was thinner, and I think I was already like a tiny little size six, like an Australian six, not US six. And just, yeah, all those things. It was always external. Yeah. So that lighthouse and that external search, I think, and trying to continue even after that. And I think it plummeted actually after that, trying to, there was, I gained weight. I felt very bad about myself. I self-harmed. I was completely lost as to who I was as a person, as to what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I wrote it and I cried so much when I wrote it. It feels such a heavy, sad thing to say, but you know, I wrote, I wish I could cut myself into a thousand pieces so I could blow away on a summer breeze so I could arrive somewhere else and put myself back together again as anyone other than me. And, you know, I mean, to think that that was me saying that when I love life so much now. Oh my gosh, you are so vibrant. You know, I see the magic in life so much now. To think that I wrote that, it just feels so dark and so heavy. So it's just a testament for anybody out there who's in it and questioning life and questioning their purpose and having that negative internal dialogue or not valuing themselves, then I testament that you can go from really not understanding one reason why you should be here to just feeling that life is such a gift and that, you know, waking up and just there's so many magical gifts in a day that it's so amazing and so beautiful. And I think that darkness really and those experiences really do make us so grateful 
and really, really appreciate just the simplicity of life. On those stormy days, we can just pause and go inside and whether that's in prayer or in meditation, just sitting in nature, just every sunrise, every sunset, listening to a bird song, being by the water, playing with our animals, children, just laughter, our friends, just so many gifts. I don't know that I'd have stopped to appreciate had that journey not happened. So I think I wouldn't want to go back through it again, but I wouldn't change anything that happened, which is just great to feel and also great to feel that the story is not played anymore. Oh, exactly. And for many years I did play it, you know, it was very much my identity and it was very much something that I got energy from it. I got energy from talking about it. I got attention, I guess, for it. And that was something that I worked through. And then you get to a place and I remember saying to Ready Break Lady Pam, you know, (laughs) when will I stop talking about this? When? I'm just like so bored of myself. I'm just so bored of me just like thinking about it, talking about it, playing it over. And she said, one day you'll just wake up when you'll be done. That's what happened with me and my husband. She'd been through it. One day, Kate, you'll just wake up and you'll be so done with it. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And that's what I love about sharing stories on this podcast or in books, the stories that we have, because people look at you now and just think, oh my gosh, what a stunning, vibrant woman. She has the world at her feet. She's so privileged. You know, her life is so wonderful. And they have no concept of it's your story that made you who you are and gave you the appreciation you have and gave you the understanding that you have and the perception that you have. Our stories are so important, but they don't control us. Yeah. And I think remembering like the small gestures, just looking at you then and just remembering like the smallest gestures that people did. I remember whether it was, oh my goodness, a kind word or, you know, my sister came over and I remember her massaging my skin and it was just sore and just the tenderness of her touch. And she wrote me some poetry that I still have now, Maya Angelou, phenomenal woman that's tucked up on some crumpled piece of paper now. My mum just turned into this like Michelin woman. She just was wonderful. And just, I hit rock bottom and said, I'm struggling. I was just doing cocaine on my own at home. There was no party anymore. It was just me trying to escape me. Yeah, and I, I just, just was just tired out. How did you reach out for help? Because so many people are afraid to. Well, my rock bottom was I went to meet the person that I got the cocaine from. And I remember him saying, you know, you don't have to pay me. You could come back to mine. Yeah. And that was the defining moment. I just thought, wow, is this where I'm going with my life? That someone thinks that I'd, you know, just sleep with them to get what I need. And um, there's something inside me. It was just like, that was it. And it was like, I have to change my life because it wasn't filling the void anymore. It wasn't enough. You know, it was getting to the point where that one little rap wasn't lasting long enough. And um, my need to escape me was getting greater. And the finances weren't there to enable that to happen. So something had to give. And everything inside me, you know, I just feel like I have an army of angels and wonderful people around me. So I reached out to my family and said, I need help. This is what's happening. They knew what I'd gone through. So they knew that it'd been so difficult and they'd witnessed so much. They'd witnessed things that no family really wants to witness. So they were exceptionally supportive and amazing Interestingly, I'd been staying up whilst I was doing the cocaine. I was staying up and doing a business plan until like all night long and creating this wonderful business plan to create a delicatessen, Ellie Kate. 
my sister just was amazing as she is and she'd found this property and she just was encouraging me why don't you move back to Chester and there's this lovely oldie worldy part of the city right by the river uh, really quaint very quintessentially English and I phoned up about this shop and he said I'm sorry we've got 13 people that are before you I just started reading interestingly the law of attraction had come on my path and I just thought I'm gonna get that shop that shop's mine and I went to meet him and put a nice dress on and I just visualized it and I took my plans that I'd done (laughs) I'd been working on through the night and I got it and that was the beginning I moved back to Chester and I deleted all the numbers in my phone I had no way of buying anything that wasn't good for me no alcohol, no cocaine, no means of getting it. And I didn't want it. I knew that I wanted a very, very different life. And I wanted to start filling that void in a loving way. I didn't know how, but I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I left Manchester and literally it was like starting again. And the universe started to conspire and beautiful things started to happen and synchronicities like applying for a property that was a rental property. It was the Duke's property and that wasn't available. And they phoned me up one day and said, we've got this, but it's a bit derelict. And I went to see and it was like this turreted little castle thing. It was just like magical, had boarded at windows, but I could just see past it. I could just see it just looking like a little fairy tale. And I moved in there. And so I think I healed the house and the house healed me. And it was just lovely. So from that point on, really, with my family's support and just with steely determination, and it wasn't without its moments. I mean, I remember one night just trying to get back to Manchester. I just needed to escape myself and being pinned up against the wall by my brother-in-law. And you know, within yeah. half an hour, I was asleep on the sofa. And I was so grateful the next morning, you know, that that hadn't happened. So it's so strong that monkey mind sometimes to destroy yourself but with the help of good friends and family that didn't happen and and it started a new adventure I guess and so how did you then end up in the US so the US happened so I founded no rain no rainbows which is my organization supporting women and I started that in the UK and I'd been doing that for nearly a year and in the space of about 24 hours I, I worked in women's shelters And there was a lovely lady there called Jenny and we'd become good friends. And I would go in and do my projects and my workshops with the women and children, Project Happiness. And Jenny said, you know, Kate, you're working too much. You should have a partner in your life. You should go on spiritual singles. And then that night I went home and I thought I'd call in and see mum and dad on the way home. And my dad, who would be the last person I would expect to say something like that, said, I think it's time for you to find someone, Kate. I think you should go on a dating site and have a partner share your life with someone so it's not all work. So I went home and it just obviously was there in my mind. So I just thought, well, I'll just put the shortest profile up and I look at the spiritual singles and just see. So I did and just put this tiny profile up just enough to be able to probably get access. Yeah. Yeah. And Johnny, Johnny sent me, he was the second person to message me and he was on it in terms of mission, find life partner. I was new on and he spotted me straight away because of that. And he, I think, was like, right, okay, would you like to do a Skype this weekend? So we did that. I spent an hour getting ready, trying to look like I hadn't got ready, but (laughs) I obviously got ready trying to do that. This is my natural Sunday look. And the first thing he said was, you look really tired. Are you okay? Oh, how how funny. (laughs) Do you want to do this another time? I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is like me at my best. Anyway, we spoke and it was really nice, but I just thought, wow, he's a little bit older than me and he lives in the middle of America, so I'm probably not going to move there. And I came off. I came off Skype 
And then he just kept popping into my mind that week. And I think on the Wednesday, I checked back on Skype and he'd messaged me and said, where have you gone? And so we started messaging and it was gorgeous. But he said, I'm so glad you wished me good luck. I've been meeting all these lovely ladies. Oh, and it how just funny. Made, yeah. And it made me feel really funny. And I was like, hmm. So anyway, we started messaging and then it was like literally every second, I think, oh, WhatsApp, we're pinging backwards and forwards. And by the Sunday, I said, I think I'm going to step back here because he'd been in sort of deeper conversations with someone else. Anyway, within the hour, he messaged back and said, I, I don't even know if that person's real and I'm really enjoying my time with you. So that was it. So that will be three years in June. So he came over and he met my family. And again, it happened super fast. And I think my family were just like, oh my goodness me, here we go. And, <laughs> yeah, look um, out. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Kate's not learned anything. And then of course, me moving to America. And to be fair, looking back now, I'm surprised they didn't say more because it did happen fast. I came over here and it's been a real roller coaster. The beginning was really bumpy in terms of being in such a different place and missing my family and my friends and culturally so different. And I didn't give it any thought, very different mentality. But now it's in terms of me and Johnny, we're just great. And so No Rain, No Rainbows continued over there, which is wonderful to see because you're doing some amazing work with that. Thank you. Yes. Well, we got a nonprofit status over here, which is something we didn't do in the UK. In the UK, we ran it as a business. It started off as voluntary. And then um, I got support from someone who really believed in the work and wanted to support my work in Cheshire. So over here, I met somebody lovely through Johnny and she owns over 70 hair salons. And she just spoke about the need that she sees on a daily basis with women in her hair salons. And every day there's an incident with abuse. And so we discussed about my feeling that whilst I enjoy doing the workshops, that there was a real need to move it online and to move the support online so we could reach a lot more women and also reach women that perhaps didn't have the confidence or the desire or whatever it was, those blocks to go and sit in a circle with strangers or in a workshop and that perhaps would want to connect and do one-to-ones and then you know, maybe in time they would move from doing like one-to-one coaching sessions with me or doing circles to then joining an in-person workshop. So she really felt that it would do well to be a nonprofit in the US. And so it was because of Kim, she was sort of guided me to do that. So we got a nonprofit status again, synchronicities and the doors just opened and found someone wonderful who pushed it through. We're now a nonprofit in the US, which is great. So I'm excited as to how that's going to unfold. So what are the plans moving forward with that? We're doing Circle for Brave Hearts. At the moment, we're doing that twice a month on the new moon and the full moon. It really is, I use the words community and compassion and connection. It's a place to come together, to share and just feel heard. And we explore a different topic in each meeting. And I like to think that we share material that inspires and helps to empower And if you get just one thing from that, that you take away that helps you in your own life, then I'm happy with that. So we've got the circles. I'm doing coaching. So one-to-one coaching through Zoom at the moment and also doing guided readings. More recently, just in my connection, just felt a lot of messages coming through and at first not really trusting that. So I've been gifting these guided readings to people that I actually don't know at all which is far more comfortable for me because then it feels, I know it's very genuine 
Yeah. And it's really been helping people. And I've just felt very guided that these messages are to help bring comfort and love and guidance to people. If it does that, then I'm comfortable with doing it. So I've really, really been enjoying doing that. If we open up as a country, in, as an area, then one of the visions that's planned to happen is we have land and to create a retreat center, Amatola Center for Brave Hearts. Amatola is Native American for rainbow. And that really is a place for women and children to come and connect. We've got a giant teepee, beautiful like Native American teepee, and to connect with the land, to do workshops, to do circles to sing, to dance, to cook, rainbow food, to learn. We're vegan, so learning about how to eat healthy and feel vibrant without it feeling boring like a piece of lettuce, like how to, yeah. cook, yum, how to cook really yummy food. So yeah, so really coaching and online support. And then when the retreat center here is finished being built, doing one-to-one treatments and then doing sort of the workshops and the programs and the circles with women and with children as well do like a rainbows for all children which is working with children that have experienced grief and loss so that's very sweet and the project happiness yeah and so important too because that's where it all starts that's where our beliefs are ingrained into our system so if you can help children at such a young age work through that that raises the whole vibration of the planet well again there's like we were saying that teaching them about those gifts within them and getting them to start exploring what that is and giving them a little toolkit, teaching them how to calm themselves through the breath and doing little children's breath work sessions, which is very cute and sticking balloons up their jumper and getting them to get the balloon to rise and lots of different little games and mindfulness and little meditations and, you know, how to release their emotions. So real social and emotional skills that are so vital and getting them to really yeah express themselves and value themselves and take them through different exercises with that and it's really really creative as well so they have like happiness journals and teach them about gratitude and what's sort of short-term long-term happiness and very creative and it's really lovely to see how they come on and also because they do it with their mums and from my experience the mums often got more out of it because they haven't had the time to pause and you know for them to think about things that they're grateful for or what does happiness mean to them and just to sit and that connection time with the children. We've done quite a lot of work with parents with autistic children and it's been really lovely to see that bond and see how the mums have come on as much or sometimes more than their children. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. A lot of mums are always too busy for time for themselves. So to have that time with their children, but still time to really think about those things is so important. I love the work that you're doing. It just fills my heart with so much joy. And you. And so where you are now, Indianapolis, like I'm in country Victoria in Australia, COVID, I think we might've had three cases here and the town pretty much didn't stop. Like I'm very isolated from a lot of the stuff going on in the world, especially America. So is it still quite chaotic over there as far as COVID and also obviously with the racism as well? That's just added a whole new level to what's going on. 
I think it's been so interesting for me as someone who's from England being here and just realizing that sort of like 50 states is like 50 different countries and so different, you know, whether Democrat or Republicans and, you know, the states that are very progressive and they've already opened back up and are really trying to get back to normal in terms of getting people back to work and realizing that for the economy, for the health, for the need to be together, to socialize for company and all those things. And then there's other states that are saying that despite the fact that they've flattened the curve, despite the fact that everybody's done what they told them to, they're now going to keep everywhere shut for another few months. And, you know, you'll see those people really being quite vocal on YouTube and saying, you know, in three months time, we won't have a business to go back to. There won't be restaurants. There won't be society as we know it. So there's this huge difference. Uh, you know, I was saying to my mom today, you can go down the same street in Indiana and have two DIY stores, one opposite each other, the same size. One's got an armed guard who's giving out face masks when you go in and the other one's no face mask and giving your dog treats and you just get a warm welcome. And, you know, we're in the same area. And I think that's a really great example of just the different mentalities, whether it's people or businesses or states are taking on this. And there's just so much fear. And it's that thing of, you know, the television. And I think if we threw away the television, how many people actually know anybody that's been sick? Obviously, in certain areas, that's a lot higher and it has impacted people. But where we are, I don't know anybody that knows anybody that's been sick. Saying that when I say sick to very seriously, I think there's quite a lot of people that feel that they've had it. They've had those symptoms and been fine. So it's really interesting. And I think there's already a fear because they're saying it's coming back. Yes. Um, so that therefore that's naturally going to slow down the economy or people's confidence in investments or the decisions that they make. So it's interesting because there's so many amazing doctors and such conflicting information on YouTube and so many great people that have had the videos taken down and suddenly Twitter, Facebook, YouTube are policing what is okay to post and what isn't. And you just have to ask yourself, why would you remove very qualified, very respected doctors um, and scientists information? What would be the reason that they would do that? And obviously, George Floyd is, uh, I wrote about that yesterday, just, you know, that image, I think will stay in my mind for many years. And, you know, maybe it deserves to, to remind me and others of the atrocities that some people are facing on a daily basis. So there's so much healing that needs to be done. And I think this time that we've had has, for lots of us, we've gone within and we've maybe really enjoyed more time with our families or more time at home or more time gardening or growing a garden or, you know, being out in nature or meditating more or just exploring what is it that we want to do in life or just realizing that actually things we thought important maybe aren't as important as we thought and maybe other things are. So I think it's fascinating The same experience is such a different experience for so many. And I think for me, it's being compassionate towards somebody who has such a different viewpoint to me and who's so fearful and who's so terrified, whether that's just even leaving the house, you know, whether it's gloves on, mask on, not going to see family, seeing family, but having them stay at the other end of the garden, not giving them food, washing food when they bring it home you know, so many different levels of fear or precautions that they're putting in place. And then other people are just out hugging no masks, 
happy, not impacted at all. Life's as normal. Because mm. I saw one of your posts the other day and I'd never considered it because I always pictured you in this remote little acreage with your teepee and just such a beautiful space. And I think one of your posts were talking about the sirens that you could hear all night. That really brought home to me because I obviously don't listen to the news. I was really unaware of what was going on until I saw that post of yours, really. Yeah, well, we are rural. So we're 35, 40 minutes outside of Indianapolis. And that was Saturday night. I think I wrote that on Sunday. That was Saturday night. And Friday night was the same. And then Sunday night was as bad. So we were like, wow, you know, where are these, are they calling in the police from the suburbs to go into the center because there was that much but a few people were killed. The problem is, is there were great protests, as in they were peaceful protests. And um, there was a really good relationship between the police and, and those that were out protesting. And then, you know, there are the few or the many that then come in where it's more organized crime. Um, yeah. And it just takes over and it takes over the news and it takes away from the message of what the peaceful protesters are trying to get across, which is so important. And, you know, like I said in what I wrote, hundreds of years of just feeling suppressed. So no, I mean, we're, we're blessed in so much as we're not near it, but we've certainly heard it. And sadly, there's been lots of government buildings and businesses that have been impacted as there have been all across the US and the UK, I believe, and in other cities. So I think it feels like there's two things from the little bit that I know. And that is one aspect is obviously the George Floyd, rightly so, people are, have had enough and want to express that. And then the other is that it's an opportunity for organized crime and for violence and abuse and systematic crime that's funded for political reasons by organizations, some I, I had never even heard of until the last few days who are evidently paid to create chaos. And that all has an agenda behind it that's far too complex for me to understand. But I think that's the thing. There's so much that we don't know. So then you just bring it back and you just think, okay, so what can I do? And you have to protect your little world. And for me, it's like not watching too much of the news. You know, yes, you need to know what's going on, but trying to not fill your mind with just lots of violence because then it's debilitating. You're far better, I think, being able to be proactive and figure out where can I get involved and what can I do to help? Yeah. What is it within me that needs to change? You know, am I racist? Other sure. things. Yeah. Like we were talking about that at the beginning, um, I think before I press record on rather than, you know, the chaos and getting wound up in all of that, there's so many things we can do on a personal level to look at our own beliefs, but also how do we help within our community directly? Now, it doesn't have to be a certain way. It doesn't have to look a certain way. It can be helping in any way, shape or form and just giving back. And you do that so beautifully. We'll bring it back to what your organization does, you know, because abuse does not and violence and abuse does not discriminate between race. There's just so many women that you help at that very deep level. And yeah, if there's anything we can do to help promote that, please let us know. How do we get in touch with No Rain, No Rainbows? How do we find out some tips and tools and things that we can do to help ourselves if we're struggling? Okay. As they say in America, that's a great question. So norainnorainbows.org is the website, or you can go to the same website, katywyatt.love. We have a private group on Facebook that I think is just one person shy of 700. And there's inspiration that's shared in there. There's a podcast that's launching in the next month. 
where we really want to interview women. We're doing a circle for brave hearts and it's toying with the idea of conversations with brave hearts. But, you know, if you have a story that you want to share, if you feel that you've really overcome adversity and that your story would really help to inspire somebody else that's a little bit further behind, then please get in touch. But if you go to the website, norainorainbows.org, you can email there, you can connect there, join the Facebook group. My phone number's there so you can connect personally and private message me and then sign up for our weekly newsletter. And then you will find out about the events that are coming up, our workshops and our circles. Wonderful. So everything's on there. Yeah, we really want to extend the reach. For me, you know, the circles and the workshops, the quality of the material is great. And from experience, the women get so much from it. Many of them are are in that private group and they still talk about how those tools help them today. And even that private group is such a safe space for people to feel heard and to be able to express as well freely. Yeah. So if you're struggling or you know somebody else that is, or you just want to feel part of a community of women, or you'd like to share your story or join the groups, then please reach out. And if you know someone else that is, please share it with them the more people that can connect and I guess connect with their sense of worth, the better. Oh, for sure. And I guess just to finish up, would you like to tell everyone how the name for No No Rainbows came about? Yeah. So the last time I was in hospital with injuries, when I came out, a friend brought me the plaque and gave it me as a gift. It was like a wooden plaque that you hang up and it said, No Rain, No Rainbows. And I'm very visual and I love rainbows. And I just love the idea that after the storm, you get all those gorgeous colors. I thought then, I knew then that uh, one day I would do something to support and help people that perhaps didn't even have a family or friends like I had been blessed to have to help me on my journey. For those people that just were struggling and felt alone that we would set up an organization that would put some sunshine back into their cloudy days. Ah, I love that. That warms my heart. I love that story so much. So thanks for sharing. And it's been such a pleasure to have you on today and share your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sally. Thank you so much. We so appreciate you taking the time to listen in. It'd be great if you could rate, review, follow, subscribe and share the love.